Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway, and today we're going to start a little bit differently. We have recently set up a Facebook page. Yes, we're still on Facebook, and uh, it's a little bit lonely over there. It's just Cam and I hanging out right now, and we'd like to invite you to join us. Uh, We want to keep it pretty informal, so the idea is just come say hi, chat, give us some feedback, tell us what you like, what you don't like so far about the podcast and give us a hand. Um, Let us know what you would like to hear us talk about, what you'd like and what you don't like about what we're already doing and saying. The funny thing about recording these things is it kind of happens in a silo. So while we know that there are more and more of you listening to us every week, and while we know that there are quite a few of you that follow us on a regular basis, and that's awesome, thank you. Uh, We have no faces to names, we have no feedback whatsoever, and we've been thinking about doing a bit of a shift in the podcast, which is just to say that we're thinking about exploring more of the behavioral side of personal finance, just to get to much more of a practical application. Because I can talk to you uh, about RSPs till I'm blue in the face. You can get a lot of that same information online. But we want to try and pivot this a little bit so that it becomes much more applicable to you on a regular day-to-day basis. So this is the stuff that we're interested in. We don't know if you're interested in that too. So give us a hand. Let us know what you'd like to see, what you wouldn't like to see. And we can uh, take it from there. Well, that's right. We are uh, three weeks away from our one-year anniversary. We've had about 35,000 downloads. We've got 1,500 subscribers now. So we just want to know what you guys think and what you are interested in and what you want us to start talking about more often. Otherwise, it might just be more RRSP TFSA talks. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's only so much you can say, right? So we don't want to bore you either. And my hope is truly that there's people out there smarter than me that can kind of connect with each other and we can help each other all out. Because I think what's really missing in this kind of arrangement where we're just kind of talking at you is the sense of community and the sense to have an actual ongoing dialogue. So no pressure, join us if you want, don't join us if you don't want. And I mean, if you get there and there's no one else there, it just means you're first to the party. So the uh, the page is set up right now, it's just Cam and I hanging out. But like I said, it's a little lonely. And of course, it's called It's Personal Finance Canada. It's got the same picture as the little uh, icon that you see when you click on us on your, your podcasting platform. And we'd love to see you and we'd love to hear from you. So come find us. Yeah. And so before we get started formally, uh, just one more housekeeping item. Uh, Just in case some people notice some issues, we actually just migrated to a new podcast host over the last week. So everything should be settled on the major carriers. I got a couple smaller ones left, like uh, Overreach and Stetcher and iHeartCanada. But those of you listening on Spotify, Apple, Google, transition went great. And again, if you've had an issue with some of the smaller providers, just let us know on our Facebook page. Yeah, and we'll try our best to fix it and make it so that we can happily continue on. 
All right. Well, let's move on to today. So I'm continuing on on my uh, on my own at my 4am book club, which is a lot of fun for me, and hopefully somewhat informative for you as well. Um, and if you do read books at 4am like I do, please let me know I'm not alone. <laughs> it would be really nice to have some moral encouragement there. Uh, and if you have a baby, uh, yeah, you get the picture. It's It's the same thing. So what book have you been reading lately? Because we tend to be reading different books right now. Yes, and I'm sorry, Cam. When I've been doing these, I kind of give him the Coles notes at the beginning of the day. We record early afternoon, so he's kind of scrambling to figure out uh, what he can say that's kind of germane that complements the entire book that I've read. But I, uh, I recently read The Millionaire Next Door, and I have been reading or actually listening to the uh, next Millionaire Next Door is an audiobook, which um, I'm going to, this is going to be weird. This is actually my first ever audiobook. Yes, I, I finally introduced Christine to the wonders of Libby and how you can just get all these books for free through your library. And it's been great. Yeah, it's probably why I've been reading so prolifically. But yes, I can now stick headphones in my ears and push a button and I'm getting information downloaded into my brain. So there you go. Perfect evidence that we're not always the smartest people here. It took me this long to figure out what an audiobook is. But uh, now I've been converted and I'll be doing a lot more of that. So it'll be my 4am listening book club. But hey, it's the same thing. But uh, back to topic. So The Millionaire Next Door, this is kind of another foundational book for the FIRE movement. And if you haven't noticed, we're big fans of Financially Independent Retire Early, that movement that basically seeks to help people find stability and security and get rid of some of the stress of losing a job or having a big shift in your industry or something along those lines, these are principles that help people make sure that they can pay their bills beyond their next paycheck. So that's why it's it's a big deal to us, and that's why I think it's something that's worth sharing. Now, this book was written by a very smart guy with a PhD named Thomas Stanley, who did a massive survey of the rich in America. And again, this actually started as, well, I don't know if it started that way, but I know at some point in time, it was a bit of a marketing play. He mentions that there were big corporations that were hiring him to try and find out how to sell stuff to rich people. So part of his job was finding out who are these rich people in America, where do they live, and what are their habits? So what do they drive? What neighborhoods do they live in? How do they consume? How do they spend? Because if you can understand someone's spending pattern as a marketer, you can understand how to sell them more things. So while that was maybe the original intention, I think that the result and what was found out as a result of the work that they did over the, the years that they were prepping the book was that the actual millionaire in America is frugal. They don't have the flash and the splash and all the glittery, shiny things that you would think they would have. They usually live in good neighborhoods with great school districts, so they don't have to pay for private school. They drive used cars mostly. I mean, some will buy new, but very well negotiated on the price. And they're okay kind of keeping on with the same car for years and years and years, same house for decades at a time kind of thing. 
And it's a pattern that you would not expect. Yeah, that was the kind of the big interesting thing that kind of came out of all of this research, because I think people tend to confuse a regular rich person with a celebrity rich person. And they assume that it's all the bells and the whistles and the nicest car and the biggest house when what the facts and the information showed was that most of these really, really rich people just live normal lives and they just save that money and put it to work somewhere else rather than just spending all their money on useless, frivolous things or things to impress others. Because that kind of turned into the core concept of how these people got rich and stayed rich and didn't just kind of peter out when they ran out of money. Well, and that's exactly one of the core concepts. So it's the confusion that people have between income which is obviously how much you make, and net worth, which is really how much you keep after all of your spending. And yeah, to speak to celebrities and people that live that big lifestyle, I mean, how many stories do you hear in the media where someone who's made millions literally goes broke because they lost a contract or their next album didn't sell or whatever it might be? Or they forgot to pay their taxes. Oops. Yeah. But still, you can have an incredibly high income and still have a very low net worth. And when you understand the difference between the two, you can start to see that things are not always as they appear. Yeah, you can kind of look at wealth and all this kind of like a bucket. And the more holes you punch into it with all of your reckless spending and frivolous things you want to buy, you just put more holes in that bucket. No matter how much wealth and stuff you pour into it, it'll just keep leaking out. And that is the big trap that a lot of people fall into and they just can't reach that level of net income and net wealth. It's like uh, one of the sayings in the book, it says, big hat, no cattle. And it was referring to uh, Texas cattle ranchers, where they're basically have all the show, they've got the look, they've got the pizzazz, that awesome hat, but no assets, no cattle to back it up. So there really is this huge difference. And I mean, of course, none of us can kind of see into each other's bank accounts and see what's actually there. So we tend to judge each other by the outward displays of status. But the person that you're trying to emulate, who's, you know, Facebook feed or Instagram or whatever the latest, uh, I'm not up on social media either, whatever the latest uh, Instagram or whatever it could be, TikTok, thank you. So what you see on social media may not be an actual reflection of what someone actually has. I mean, yes, the stuff is there, but are the means there to pay for it? And the core concept of this book is that anyone over their lifetime who's willing to subscribe to this lifestyle of frugality, this lifestyle of being aware of where your money is going and making big decisions that essentially will allow you to save a good percentage of your income is something that really struck a tone with a lot of the readers. So the $1 million threshold was what they had used in the book as kind of the metric of, i.e., what they were defining as being rich. I mean, there's a huge range in there, of course. There's people on their way. There's people that are well above that. But it's pretty encouraging when you can say to people that, yes, with a good job, with low overhead and great habits, you too can kind of save your way to a high net worth if that's what's important to you. And this is kind of the, the funny math thing going on here. So theoretically, if you work from age 20 to age 65 to make your million dollars, you only need like $23,000 a year. 
but expenses eat into that and that's kind of what the whole frugality talk is about is being able to realize that hey i'm actually going to make a million dollars over these 45 years but what am i going to do with it well that's it and making a million dollars and keeping a million dollars are two very different things so that's what creates this kind of tension between today and tomorrow of course it's in our nature as humans we want to live in today right we want to have enough food. We want to have a warm house to go back to at the end of the day. We want to hunt and gather enough resources to keep ourselves safe and warm and fed throughout this period of time. And it's in our very nature to kind of be maybe a little more focused on today than focused on tomorrow. And where this dichotomy arises is that the people who are good at having a successful tomorrow are the ones that are able to keep an eye on it while meeting their needs today. So what does that look like? Maybe it means that the needs for today are a little bit more simple or a little more basic than we kind of condition ourselves to want to accept. And I mean, there's a lot that plays into that. It can be how you're raised as a child. It can be the standard of living that you're accustomed to in your household. It ultimately comes down to defining characteristics like discipline, deferred gratification, conscientiousness, and resiliency. Now, these are the things that they talk about in the book. And you kind of look at a list like that and say, well, wait a second, those aren't things. Those are essentially habits or they're essentially a way of being, a way of doing. Is that something that you can change or is that something that you can cultivate in yourself over time? And I think that's the real question. First, there has to be a desire to live that way. And next, there has to be discipline in cultivating some of these behaviors and characteristics and habits that will ultimately lead to this type of success. Well, yeah, and even, well, take the, the bigger view, even culturally, societies who kind of take this longer term delayed gratification approach tend to be the ones that survive. And the ones that kind of burn fast and bright are the ones who are so obsessively compassed with the here and the now, feeding themselves now, getting all their desires met in this instant. And they're the ones that, like I said, they just collapse and fail and they succumb to to the ones that have this longer term delayed gratification focus where it's all about the long term it's about where we're going to be 10 15 20 100 years from now and not just next summer kind of thing and we can really look at it in our own lives too do we want to play the same game of kind of burning fast and bright today and sacrificing tomorrow as a consequence well that's it they say you can have an easy today and a hard tomorrow or a hard today and easy tomorrow and I think that that really kind of rings true. But is this lifestyle still for everyone? I think that's the core question that people that are looking at this type of frugality really have to ask themselves. Because honestly, it's not for everyone. Not everyone is willing to trade today for tomorrow, especially when they feel like what they're going to get later on in the trade just isn't worth it. So let me explain. When this book came out, again, this was a study done in the States, in America, the author talked a lot about the big items, so housing, car, clothes, and at the time he was recommending that a house shouldn't be more than three times earnings. And now that 
today is something that would be incredibly hard to do in certain areas of Canada. Now, if you live in a higher cost of living area and you have all your reasons to not want to move somewhere else, so maybe your job is here, your family and your friends are here, you don't really want to change that, then that advice would be very difficult to follow. And I mean, things like housing, they are so different across the country. It very well could be doable, like in the prairies or in certain provinces. Yeah, that's kind of the issue people are having right now, where if you live in like Toronto, Vancouver, it seems less likely. But if you're in like Saskatoon, Fredericton, or even outside of Winnipeg, yeah, you probably have a little easier chance to pull this off. Well, and home ownership doesn't have to be the central focus either. Not everyone has the goal of owning a home, although, I mean, in other places we've talked about the pros and cons, but sometimes the market we're in now, the places you could afford, maybe they're not conducive to the type of lifestyle that you're wanting to live. So in that case, the traditional advice of investing the difference, so renting and investing the difference can have some merits. My big thing is just making sure that there's some other goal that you find yourself working towards that's of material value and to try and find out which will over time create a greater net impact to your net worth. Okay, let's talk about something else in the book and is this idea that for most people, the goal of life is to just make a lot of money. That's it. Invest, work hard, buy gold, sell whatever, NFTs, something like that. But the end goal is to just make as much currency as possible. Is this realistic? And is this something that's actually going to make someone rich in terms of net assets and a nice lifestyle? Well, the goal in the book is to keep it. It's to keep as much of the money as possible. And they have two categories. They're prodigious accumulators of wealth. So those could be professionals, people in a high-paying job, but it doesn't have to be. But it's the people that make the choices that allow them to save a large percentage of their earnings. And like I said, that ability comes from the choices they've made around where they live, what they drive, how they dress, how they vacation, all of those big things. Where the other category in the book, the under accumulators of wealth, are those who really do believe that statement. They think the goal of life is to make a lot of money and that the truly rich people are the people that have not only made the money, but have spent it all. So again, that tension between today versus tomorrow is it worth it long term to have these nice things today or is it better to have comfort and to have more savings later on now maybe you can hear my bias in that and i think the people that appreciated this book are the kinds that felt that it resonated with them but i think maybe there's some validation in understanding that the appearances are not always what matters and the people that succeed in this type of lifestyle are the ones that the book says have social indifference, which is basically to say that they're not interested in keeping up with the Joneses and are able to avoid that pressure. This is also why Bill Gates got mocked for so many years about his bad haircuts because he put his money somewhere else that actually made him money and just didn't care about the flashiness. And we see this a lot with some people in tech and other rich people where you walk past them on the street, you'd have no idea they're like one of the 20, 30 richest people in the world, as opposed to some other people who may have a small amount of wealth with the 
thousands of dollar suits, the $80,000 pickup trucks, so to say. And you say, oh yeah, that person's rich, but they could actually just be a blip on the radar compared to some other people. Well, that's it. And as people move up that ladder and do what they feel is expected for them, so the bigger house in the rich neighborhood, that can add pressure of its own because now you're driving past everybody else's fancy cars in their driveways, their BMWs and Cadillacs and Teslas and private schools, and the need to fit in is very real. And moving up in that way could cause spending in other areas. So that's what we call lifestyle creep. But it's also very much a part of the pressure that can come with feeling like you want to fit in. Yeah. And you don't even see this in like super affluent neighborhoods. Like there's areas around where we live where you see these small, like little thousand square foot older townhouses, but they've got BMW M series and Mercedes AMGs parked in the driveway. They're just trying to keep up with everyone else and that social standard that's part of the culture out here. So it's not even the, I am in a super affluent neighborhood. It could just be some people in an average neighborhood feeling like they have to keep up with the other people in the community. And I think there's another dynamic here. I think here in Canada with housing in certain areas, like the one that we live in, when you feel like you can't achieve some of those goals. So let's say you wanted the single family home and you feel like it's out of reach for you, that could prompt higher spending in other areas. So maybe you say to yourself, you know what, I don't think I can hit this goal. Maybe what I really want is the next best thing, which is this luxury model vehicle. And that's where changing and defining those priorities and those goals and is that luxury vehicle something that can keep you warm at night? <laughs> but that's not something that will have the same potential capital appreciation that you could have in buying a home or if you can't buy the type of home that you want maybe we follow the rich dad poor dad premise that we talked about last week where you buy assets that'll make you money and then have those assets subsidize your ability to live in the home that you want or eventually buy the home that you want yeah it's that whole social indifference that the book talked about where it, you kind of need it if you actually really want to get ahead. Like, I don't care if I've been driving the same Toyota for years. It's paid off. It runs well. And I'm not going to waste thousands of dollars just to have something shinier when I got something really good already. Well, and that's the attitude. And I think that people that follow this model subscribe to that exact same way of thinking, where it's almost a sense of pride or like a badge of honor or something along those lines that, hey, I didn't buy in. I'm great with that. Or, hey, you know what? I've been in the same house or townhouse for the last decade. I'm good with that. I'm in a good neighborhood. That's great. I don't need the bigger house. I don't need the nicer car. And what people don't see behind the scenes is that if I'm diligent with the savings, that's what's going to grow consistently over time. Now, all that is well and good, but at the same time, we have to remember that like all of the classic personal finance books, this was written by an American author. So it's not always like an apple to apples comparison going on here. Like with the author, he talked about how uh, he spoke to many millionaires who owned homes in the $125,000 to $395,000 range. And surprisingly, of those people, he found that 91% of them were actually very happy and satisfied with living at a home of that price range. Now, this just 
isn't realistic to us today. Even just a small shanty shack in the middle of nowhere in Canada is worth a lot more than that. So I wanted to bring in a bit of context to how we can kind of look at how all this works for us. Like even the idea of net worth. Uh, Stats Canada recently put out some pretty good information. So Canadians under 35 on average had a net worth of about $48,800. So less than a Tesla. And you go on further in age, people who are 35 to 44 years old had an average net worth of $243,000. So a lot of these people may have bought a house, may have started paying off the mortgage, but there's still a good chunk of it left. There's probably some debt and a bunch of other things. Let's go up a little further. So people age 45 to 54 in Canada, their net worth is up to $521,000. Again, longer time to pay off their mortgage. And finally, the last group people age 55 to 64 sat in at an average net worth of $690,000. That sounds great. You hope that your house is paid off and you're ready to retire, but even today, there are projections out there saying that if you want to be comfortable, it could take up to a million dollars to keep you going until your 90s. I've seen some other projections in the States where they're saying you might need up to like $1.5 million to live comfortably in retirement. So these numbers kind of give you a better picture of what you may have and what is sort of considered well, rich and this whole millionaire next door philosophy. Because even in Canada, it's Someone who is considered rich is anyone with a net worth of over $1 million. So according to Stats Canada, that works out to about 764,000 people or about 2% of the population. These are the people who have a minimum of $1 to $5 million as a net worth. And really, this is sort of the target for a lot of people, especially if you want to have that comfortable retirement and not continue paying your mortgage for 40-some years. And I think this is important just to kind of get a clear idea of where you are and what you should be targeting and how just living these ideas of being more frugal, more focused can actually help you in the long run because a million dollars sounds like a lot until you have to drag it out for 30 years in retirement. But kind of doubling back to the book, he kind of talks about his seven common denominators of those who successfully built wealth, but you would never realize it. So again, these are people who live below their means. So like I said, they lived in the cheaper houses. They had the used car, wore jeans to work and all that. They were good at allocating their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways that were actually helpful for them to actually build wealth and not just spend, spend, spend. Thirdly, they all believe that financial independence is more important than displaying that high social status. Like, like I mentioned earlier, it's that dichotomy between the everyday rich person and the celebrity rich person with all the fancy bells and whistles that, spoiler alert, most of them didn't pay for or they got comped or got a high discount for, but they do it to impress you. And a lot of these people, they just don't care about impressing the Joneses and everyone else. They just want their financial independence. They want their security and they have no desire to show it off. So they can live comfortably while all these other people are struggling or they're just trying to spend their way to success. Okay, so back on track then. So the fourth is these people, their parents didn't provide an economic outpatient care. They didn't fund them. They didn't help them. And that kind of translates to five where the adult children of these millionaires next door were all economically self-sufficient. They put in the time to teach their children how to handle money and how to master it and not be mastered by it, which is the big trap. And we might have something fun about that in a couple of weeks. Sixthly, these people are proficient in target marketing opportunities. 
they were actively engaged to try to find things that would help build their portfolio to build their financial security. And that ties into the last point is they chose the right occupation. So as crass as this sounds, you may not become millionaire next door by flipping burgers, but it's figuring out what your talents and your giftings are and figure out how to use it to really make your life better than it can be otherwise. So like with us, we are in the financial services industry. We are helping people like you deal with their finances, build their retirement, build their investments, have, be able to save money for their kids and their grandkids and for everyone to be comfortable and actually enjoy the now and not just retirement. So it's about finding this place where you are comfortable, you're proficient, and you're able to really Build something that can help you later on rather than just trying to support something that's going to drag you down or to just keep deferring it. Like we've got kids now, so we've been inundated by the endless Coco Melon songs and they keep thinking about the song with the grasshopper and the ant where the ant got ready and the grasshopper didn't and the grasshopper starved. Okay, that's more of the, the grim fairy tale version, not the kitty one, but that's the main point. It's making these lifestyle decisions now so that you can have your own financial independence and not just be a slave to your job or just endlessly indebted to a bank or a credit union. So all of that to say, how do you know if you're on track? Of course, the information from Statistics Canada can help, or at least it can tell you what others have been doing. But from the author's own playbook, he had his own kind of formula of how much you should have in net worth by your age. And I'll read it to you as he has it on his blog on his website, themillionairenextdoor.com. So it says, simply stated, your household's net worth should equal 10% of the age of the main breadwinner times your household's annual realized income. In short, it should be 10% times the age times income equals expected net worth. If you're in the balance sheet affluent category, also known as the prodigious accumulators of wealth, your net worth should be twice the expectation. So that's at least the benchmark in the book to show what your net worth should be relative to age, because as we know, those that are older have had a longer period of time to accumulate wealth. What I'd kind of like to explore next, and we'll leave this up to you, so find us on the Facebook group, let us know. I'd like to explore how those characteristics that they talk about in the book, the discipline, the deferred gratification, conscientiousness, and resiliency, how can we turn those into habits that we can then work towards cultivating? And I've found yet another good book that I think can really help us with that. It's one that I've read in the past, but I think there's a good link that we can make from this personal finance conversation to cultivating things that actually cause real change in your life if you want them and if you're willing to put in the work to get there. So shoot us an email, or I guess it's not an email, shoot us a DM on social media or putting on the page. Just let us know what you're thinking. Let me know if I'm kind of going in the right direction here or if you'd like me to go back to talking about RSPs and TFSAs, which is totally fine too. Um, I just want to see that as we pivot and as this show kind of evolves, that we've got people that are interested on going on this ride with us. So this week, rather than saying find us at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com, what I'll say is find us on Facebook. It's Personal Finance Canada. We're listed as a podcast and we're, we're open to talk.
Yeah, and beyond that, if you're enjoying this, please leave a rating review on Spotify and Apple. That always helps satisfy the dancing algorithm. He's got to keep dancing. So yes, the happier dances are always the better dances. So yes, please like, please share, please tell a friend. And let's try and turn this into a community. Let's try and turn this into a conversation where we can really help you and we can really help each other grow and we can explore these ideas of frugality and of discipline and of spending and lifestyle online where it becomes more of a conversation and less of us trying to fit an entire book into about 20 minutes, which is very, very challenging to do. So uh, yeah, I hope you join us. I hope you uh, come check us out. And if not, we'll be here next week. So until the next time, take care and all the best. Bye.